This millennium has seen the most advanced technological developments in human history, and the latest shift towards cloud-based technologies has changed the landscape and forced companies to develop. Now, more than ever, vast amounts of data are being processed. Millions upon millions of pieces of information are being uploaded, downloaded, and stored each second. Parents learned how to keep their kids safe online thanks to a recent program at the Naperville Municipal Center. Your Digital Footprint Matters is an annual event. Yeah. If anything, he's going to get cancelled for his tweets. People will be like, did you see what he said on Twitter? What he allegedly said on Twitter. Welcome to Overdue Conversations, a podcast about the ways archives inform our discussions around history, literature, and politics. From digital publishing to reparative justice, climate change to public health, this series of Overdue Conversations takes archival documents out of the stacks and into the public forum to consider how collecting practices, selective reading, and erasure of past knowledge informs and distorts contemporary debates. I'm Amanda Martin-Hardin, a history doctoral student here at Columbia and a producer for this podcast. In this episode, Columbia Literature Curator Lena Moe sits down with Trevor Owens, the Head of Digital Content Management at the Library of Congress. Trevor is the first person to hold this position because it's new. In fact, digital content management is new to most institutions. Lena and Trevor discuss the many, sometimes contradictory, challenges of dealing with digital content. How do we keep the things we want to preserve, but get rid of the things that inadvertently get swept into digital archives, like personal, sensitive, or even offensive information? Lena's conversation with Trevor is wide-ranging, covering topics including digital forensic sleuthing, recovering overwritten data on wiped hard drives, humanities versus computer science training for librarians, and the overlooked labor that keeps libraries going. Despite working at one of the largest repositories in the country, Trevor also brought up the importance of preservation at smaller community archives, like those in tribal communities. Finally, Lena and Trevor discuss the more product, less process movement within archives, including the ethical questions raised by archival acquisitions like Stanford's 4chan collection. It's a fascinating conversation, so let's jump in. Hi, Trevor. Thanks for talking to me today on the podcast. We were originally scheduled to talk January 6th, and you're based in D.C., so very reasonably, you wrote to me and said, maybe another time. But we're here today, um, and I just saw that the House has voted to impeach a second time. There are still so many questions to be answered about what happened and what it means. So I want today to talk to you just a little bit about our immediate context and also get to your book and your work as a digital preservationist at the Library of Congress. But I felt like we sort of had to start with the events that contextualize our conversation. And I wanted to ask you, how would it work, say, if we wanted to create a collection around what happened on January 6th? I mean, more broadly, I think it would be interesting to know the sort of discussions that you have about the challenges of trying to archive social moments as opposed to preserving the archives of an author's papers or those of a cultural institution. 
Do you have any thoughts about that, about how you would begin that conversation with your team? And what are the sort of big issues and parameters you would think about? Sure. So I think that the first thing, it, it's good to clarify that my, my day job, my my sort of hat at work is really about how to work with the things that other people want to get. So we don't pick what we acquire or do those collection development kind of things. That's a thing that falls to subject matter experts. So I'm not in the best position to talk about that from an institutional perspective. But I think the, the, the main thing I would offer in that vein is that I think the questions you're asking there are, are always going to be tied to a particular institution and what its goals and objectives are for building collections. And so I think starting from that will start to draw out what kinds of things someone might collect or acquire about really any event or situation. Well, in your book, you write about how preserving context is important. And I thought that you put that in a really interesting way, which is on the one hand, context is or can be the computer interface in which Salman Rushdie composed. So you note that he had specific writing processes that show up in the way that he used the computer. I loved that he was an avid user of sticky notes, which I feel like I am too, and it's just the worst way of organizing my thoughts. But other broader contexts you write, you can think about the letters and the artifacts left at the Vietnam War Memorial, for example. But you can also document how people interact with the wall and how they behave in the vicinity. Um, so I was wondering if, you, if you're thinking about a social event there, what are the kind of maybe specifically digital documents that you would look for? Sure. I think one of the things that's really important to, to think about with digital information is that we've really had a pretty dramatic context collapse between a lot of different sort of lineages or traditions of materials you might collect. So the, the way that media sort of merges together in mixed forms or the extent to which people are sort of doing a lot of documentation or recording things ends up being really powerful as, as documentation. But at the same time, we've got a lot of really valuable documentation strategies that have developed through work in oral history and, and those sort of movements. And so I think when anyone's approaching thinking about what to acquire around an event or an activity, there's now sort of a really broad set of tools available to think about documentation of sources from a moment in time. Do you want reflections? Do you want deliberation? All those kinds of things are, I think, draw out a lot of different sorts of opportunities to collect. It's worth underscoring, too, that there's just such a flood of constant stream of information that I think an important thing to be thinking about is that the sort of selectivity of collecting becomes all the more central. I think it's also important for everyone to be thinking about the effects of what it takes to work through and process any given collection, particularly with something that has traumatic components to it, because someone's going to have to work through and review and process material. And, and there's a lot of questions that come up, I think, increasingly around any number of fraught situations in terms of who's going to do that work, who's going to look at this material, what, who's it serve, how, is, how and why is it being collected, those sorts of questions. You raise a number of good points there. So I want to touch on them in turn. The first point that you draw out is that there is a flood of information and it can't all be preserved. So people worry on the one hand about their digital footprint lasting forever, being haunted by that one Facebook post, but then on the other hand, worry about losing things online, 
what if I have so many files I can't access them? Or for me, that fateful day when I switched from my gateway computer to my new Apple laptop. I don't know if you remember that company. And then I just never switched any of the files. I just lost them and left them behind on that kind of ancient hardware. So in your job, what do you worry about getting lost? And what do you worry about sticking around that you don't think is appropriate to keep around? Oh, interesting. I think the thing, broadly speaking, that I think are of, of the biggest concern are uh, for enduring access are some of the materials that for really small institutions or organizations collect and acquire that serve very specific local communities. So that, that would be things like community archives or a lot of sort of under-resourced institutions. So you think about tribal libraries and archives. There's really important perspectives and knowledge that really are anchored in those communities that are as I was noting, under-resourced to begin with. And I think one of the challenges there is the there's possibilities for partnerships and collaborations, but there's also, in many cases, challenges around power dynamics and things like that that are themselves complex for what those kinds of partnerships should look like. So I think that's the, if there's stuff that I'm, I would be worried about, it would be materials in those spaces. And then if there's things that I think in general, there's concern about sticking around. I think on that end, a lot of things that you would want to be tracking and managing in sort of records retention schedules, things that records management had set up detailed processes for working with in the analog world. But I think that in many cases, it's easier to keep a bunch of stuff than to parse through it in various organizations. And so there's a lot of sensitive information about people's personally identifiable information, those sorts of things. And I think it's it's worth underscoring just how frequent we see various major companies having data breaches and things like that. And a lot of that data, uh, if we all got better at getting rid of data that could cause those kinds of harms, I think we'd be in a better state for as a, as a society. That, that's really interesting. So a lot of personal data can just get lost in this avalanche of data and then you don't even know that it's being being preserved. And so it's not being protected either. And to your other point about small-scale institutions, um, I think that it's really clear in your book that you have a variety of audiences in mind. So I was thinking about the, the disasters that can strike um, small institutions. So actually last January, there was a fire at the museum of Chinese in America that destroyed an irreplaceable collection. It was documents that told the story of Chinese immigration to the U.S. from textiles and restaurant menus to um, tickets for passages from China to New York. It destroyed all of the collection that wasn't on view. And physical disasters like this happen, and they are tragic. Um, and I think part of your book is trying to keep digital disasters from happening too. Um, and now I'm thinking more about the losing side of things rather than inadvertently keeping things around. So you talk about keeping multiple digital copies of things. Can you walk me through, like, what are some of these disaster scenarios that, that might happen? So in this vein, I think for small organizations, the kinds of guidance that exists around just personal digital archiving or personal digital file management is spot on. And so there's a lot of consumer level 
material that's just useful for that as a starting point. But I think the core sets of principles there are making multiple copies, uh, engaging in practices to check on those copies, setting the schedule by which you're going to check them, thinking about varied media. And increasingly, there's issues around thinking through how syncing happens between copies, because so many of our approaches and systems that we use are uh, involve sort of automated syncing, so you can have cascading problems between a system. But I think in a in a tangible or pragmatic sense of the kinds of losses that exist. One of the things that inspired some of the work in my book and my teaching on digital preservation is I was at a public history conference talking with someone from a, a house museum at one point, and they were really excited about this digital preservation training they were going to do on premise, which is a, a preservation metadata schema. Um, and I was talking with them a bit more about what, what things they were really concerned about. And they said, well, the thing that, you know, I'm really worried about is we have these amazing, unique oral history interview videos that are just on one computer. It's a workstation. Someone works at that computer every day. And that's the kind of thing where I want to sort of grab people and say, don't go to that workshop. Go buy a second hard drive, make a copy of the data off that thing, take the hard drive home. Even at the most basic level that kind of get the boxes off the floor mentality or approach. But I think the thing to be thinking through in any of these situations is very tangible, sort of what are the most pressing risks to any set of content that matters to you. And in that case, one of the most pressing risks was someone spilling a cup of coffee on that one computer and it'll all be gone. So I think in those cases, that kind of very pragmatic risk thinking can work really well. You really sort of uh, very quickly hit at some of the most core risks. And I think to that point, your fire example is good too, because if you have two copies and there's a hard drive in your office and the computer in your office, you know, the, the hard drive saves you from the cup of coffee problem, but it doesn't save you from if there was a fire because they both burned in the same spot. But if you took that hard drive home, you're better off. Or if you're using a, you know, cloud provider service, you've got another vector for how that works. But I'd also underscore that your options vary dramatically depending on the kinds of ways you can provide access to the content. So if you were in a small organization and you actually could make the material very openly available. You might, if the right situation worked out, it could be that you put copies of things into Wikimedia Commons and you put copies of them into a few other different places where they can actually get accessed and used from those points as well. So I think there's ways to be creative about it too. I want to step back just for a moment. Do you think that there are unique challenges to digital preservation as opposed to the preservation of paper archives? Or do you think fundamentally the same challenges apply? Yes, I think there are there are unquestionably things that are unique to digital information. The the big challenge we face consistently with this is questions about how radically different it is and is everything different or to what extent is this the same and we need to do the same things. And there's I think it swings pretty dramatically between the two poles at different moments in time. Um, so I think on the base level, the thing that's worth underscoring about digital information that's pretty fundamentally different than analog information is that um, one of the core bases of computing is constant replication of copies. So uh, when I open a file or load one, there's actually like copies are made of files constantly as part of the way of experiencing an object. So that is pretty radically different. And it's also the case that digital objects are at the base level fundamentally different than than analog objects and that they are sequences of bits. So there's sort of a grounded truth base to them that's pretty different than analog material, where an analog material, the way you even assert that a thing is the same as something else ends up being different at sort of a philosophical level. So, you know, if I say 
the physical objects persisting forward in time is the basis of working on sort of conservation and preservation for the most part with analog material, with the exception of reformatting in which you make a distinct new copy of something. And in contrast, all digital preservation is effectively preservation of information bit streams. It's worth noting that digital information can't exist without being encoded in the medium. So there's always a tangible object that has a bit stream on it. But for the most part, when we talk about digital preservation, we're not talking about like conservation of media objects themselves. We're assuming that the information is extracted off the objects and then treated in, a, in that bitstream kind of function. So that's pretty radically different. I think another thing that's worth noting in that vein is that Lev Manovich in the language of new media makes this case that one of the things that's sort of fundamentally core about new media objects is their database nature. So the, a claim he puts forward is that within a database, there's sort of no first row on some level. It exists for you to query it. And so in that vein, there's a linearity to analog media that ends up being pretty radically different than the base primitive ways of facet and um, filter and those kinds of things that come in in the sort of nested layering of how digital media objects work. You give some great examples of how databases organized digital content. And I was really drawn to your distinction between the database logic of Yahoo versus Google. Um, and the way I understood how you explain this is that Yahoo, which originally started and Jer as Jerry and David's guide to the World Wide Web, I'd also never heard that, worked from a logic that might be like a finding aid or an index to a book in which the important topics and agents are chosen by moderators versus Google, which created an algorithm that allowed query results to come up based on data in the system. So links, number of keywords, page views. Is this an apt description of the comparison between the way they're organized? And how do you think that this division is playing out for libraries and librarians? Yeah. So the the bit about the, the early days of Google and Yahoo and um, the extent to which Yahoo was sort of an expert curated way of navigating the web and then the PageRank algorithm that, I mean, Google's drifted pretty far away from what PageRank was originally, but that idea that, that the graph emerges from the, the links between the pages was, was really revolutionary. But I think it is fair to say that there's emergent property of the media versus sort of expert curation. But I think it's worth noting that that is a thing that on some level is consistent with archival practice in many ways too, in that someone in the kind of NPLP framework, you do some amount of description of the whole, the entirety of a collection, but you try to leverage as much as possible the order and structure that the material came in as a way to uh, persist that context forward for users to make sense of. So in that sense, you've got a mixture of the inherent structure of material and how it was organized over time with expert knowledge on the, the front end. And I think it's also worth noting that at this point, whenever you do Google searches, one of the core things that comes up is the knowledge info boxes, which are largely powered by structured data that comes out of Wikipedia. So the Wikipedians, I think, are themselves an interesting valence into this as well, and that so much of the power of search for us is driven increasingly by that structured data that is the kind of knowledge graph that comes from this crowd-built encyclopedia. That's really interesting. I think that during 
during COVID, we've started to investigate sort of where hits are coming from to our archives portal and directly to our finding aids. And Wikipedia is is a big driver of that. People come directly from Wikipedia or people link finding aids to Wikipedia. It's interesting because I ran into some moderators that said, um, or I read the comments of some moderators who said, you know, this isn't a, a giant archival repository. It shouldn't be an encyclopedia for everything. And yet it kind of works that way. And people want to add um, direct links to libraries. I mean, the, the, the work that's gone on around GLAM, Wiki, sort of gallery, libraries, archives and museums, Wikipedia, over the years is is really great. So there's some, some good progress that's been made in that space. But it is, Wikipedia is really exciting on the one hand, and that it, it is an amazingly successful venture that is fundamentally non-commercial, that is a tech startup sort of thing. And um in that vein, I think it has a lot to offer for thinking about what sustainable, non-commercial ways of technology infrastructure working. And one of the things that's particularly important about that is there really is governance to Wikipedia. Like it has bureaucracy um, and that's frustrating, but it's also like the sign of something that becomes healthier. At the same time, the, the last Wikipedia bit there is that it has it has really, really problematic diversity of viewpoint and participant issues. And it's got its own parts of it that become toxic too, in terms of how fights about notability play out and all those sorts of things. So there are a lot of folks who have sort of given up on it in the struggles that come from trying to get it to be well governed and run. But I think there's still so much good there that I remain optimistic that further participation can get it to become stronger and more equitable. And there's a lot of great efforts, many of them anchored in libraries, archives, and museums to try and help improve mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. knowledge base. Were you interested in libraries and collections as a kid? Huh. Um, Did you collect anything? I had, I, I mean, in terms of collecting things, I had like Star Wars figures, so I bought old Star Wars figures. Um, but and I, I mean, you know, I think more or less like any kid, I'd love to go to the library, getting checking out books. The thing that really got me interested in libraries in a big way was when I started working at the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University on Zotero, the, the main way that that open source reference management tool got into the hands of users was by librarians doing reference training, those sorts of things. And so I was really excited and impressed by that. And the Center for History and Media has a long history of being anchored in the idea that historians should be involved in collecting and preserving in ways they had been a lot more in the past. So there were a lot of collecting projects going on there. So I wanted to ask you somewhat of a technical question about the sleuthing element of digital preservation with the caveat that I've only read about this through your work. Um, but I do want to say, Trevor, that one of the wonderful things about your book is that you equip people to ask questions about digital preservation with basically no background in it. So you describe a procedure in which using a Hox editor, you might be able to recover bitstream of deleted files, something like the Archimedes palimpsest, which for listeners without this information at their fingertips is the name of a 10th century Greek copy of a previously unknown work by Archimedes that was erased and overwritten by a religious text in the 13th century 
but the material traces of the older text were still visible to scanning, and so it was rediscovered. Um, but you say that digital works can be recovered in this way too. So even though something is deleted and maybe even written over, the original information can be forensically recovered. Have you ever conducted this with an archive um, under your care at the Library of Congress? And in what situation would you turn to this sort of very involved forensic work? Oh, sure. So I can give a couple examples and work my way up to sort of stack of ways that this works. And I think the, the main thing to underscore with this is that it's important to understand how data is written and understood in a computing system. And that changes depending on the exact structure of it. Um, but the really the best resource to go to on understanding this is to get uh, Matt Kirschenbaum's book on new media and the forensic imagination. So Matt's book, I think I've probably read 10 or 15 different times. It's just amazingly well-written and it has these great detailed dives into some of these issues. But the core things that come through for understanding that is that for the most part, when a computer deletes a file, it actually just marks it as space available to be rewritten. So what that ends up meaning is that in, in his book in particular, he's got an example where he downloads a ROM for a game called Mystery House and he opens it in a hex editor, which is a way to sort of render the blocks of storage stored on the disk. And within that, he is able to browse it and find text that doesn't appear in the game, which is pretty revelatory. And you look into it and the text that was in that game is actually from a different game. And from that, the inference becomes what probably happened is the person who uploaded a copy of this disk uploaded a uh, full copy of a disk that they had actually saved different games on over time. And so you could actually see a game that was on that disk before it was overwritten with a different game. But there's also a, a deeper layer to that, which is when hard drives get wiped, they get overwritten a ton of times. And like a, a lot of organizations actually have shredders for hard drives too. Like a physical shredder? Yes, um, they will shred hard drives. Because it's important to note, like if someone has a, puts a lot of resources into it, you can in some cases read as many as five or six previous writes backward on a hard drive, because every time the hard drive writes a band, it's always slightly out of alignment with the previous band because it's worth underscoring again that this is all physical, tangible stuff. And so, you know, there's a bit sequence that gets written onto a disc that gets read off. But if you do spend a lot of time with it, you might be able to see the bands that were there before that are partially overwritten. And then the other the last example that I use in the book is um, is interesting, actually, a thing that is in the Library of Congress's collections, but that. I had nothing to do with it was done before I got there and was done by a researcher, Doug Reside, who's now a curator at New York Public Library working with performing arts collections. And in his case, he had a situation where he opened up text file of a musical and saw that all the text was very different than the final version. And in that case, it turned out that because he rendered that document in an application it wasn't written in, but that could still read the text, it rendered what was actually the original version of the text, because I think it may be, I, I think it's word perfect, but it might be word star. But in any event, that tool had a thing that was called fast saves, where when you did save, it would just append to the bottom of the file, the edits. And so functionally the way that file works, if you open it in a different piece of software, it shows you the very first version and then lays out all of the sort of changes that occurred to the document over time, which is really exciting for thinking about reconstructing someone's work. But it, that's a case where, one of the metaphors I like to use with this is that uh, weirdly, there's a lot of nooks and crannies around how digital files get saved or moved. 
that ends up leaving a lot of traces that you can carry through to find unintentionally remaining material. Mm-hmm. The, the way you describe that last example of having both the text and the history of changes made to it is just probably a dream for a literary scholar. And it is in a way easier. I mean, it, it, it usefully collates all of the research that one might do into a single document. Yeah, no, it, it definitely was. And Doug's written a few things about it. Doug and Matt also were both involved in writing a clear report about digital forensics for libraries and archives, which is also outstanding. So I, I can't recommend that enough as another source for what are really some kind of mind-blowing stories about where and how information exists and persists in different systems. I spoke with Matt about his newest report, Book Files, about the publishing industry and both how the move to digital publishing presents a number of new challenges. One, something that you've talked about, is that the constant creation of new copies makes it incredibly difficult, especially if nobody is responsible or motivated for organizing um, those copies. The other thing that we talked about is the sort of fragmentation of the publishing work across both employees and independent contractors. So people who might you know, not be paid well enough and not be uh, attached firmly to a company so that they won't keep their files. And so that, that makes it more and more difficult to have a kind of coherent literary history of publishing. Um, and I'd actually like to ask you some of the labor questions that his book, I think, brings to the surface. One thing that I wondered is your job, I think, sits between or includes both expertise in computing and in archiving. And I think that there is a new power to having some computer science background in the library and curatorial and archives field. And I was looking at a job listing at the Library of Congress, a digital innovation specialist, which sounded really fun. And I also saw that the minimum salary was twice that of a curator at Columbia. So I think this is somewhat of a tricky question to ask because questions around salary are always so taboo, even though some people are working to make these more transparent in the interest of equity. But I guess my question is, do you think that the positions with computer science backgrounds, given how the market provides more lucrative alternative careers than, say, to humanities curators who aren't going to scamper off to work for Google... Do you see pay as being a problem in libraries and in the digital preservation field? And do you think there are ways of confronting pay disparity? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting thing to get into in different sorts of organizations. If you haven't checked it out, there's a relatively new book that I'm pretty sure her name's Anne Helen Peterson has come out with on burnout and millennials as a generation. One of the things she gets into a lot is just the spiraling set of challenges around precarity and work and pay for anything that someone might, I think in her terms, she refers to it as a cool job. Like people want to have a cool job that they tell people about. And so I think librarianship falls into that or like journalism, marketing, any number of these things. And all of those are vexed with the same set of problems in many ways. I do think it's a, an important thing. I think that the Digital Library Federation has a, a group focused on labor issues. And I think a huge project and effort there around, particularly for grant funded and sort of precarious positions, trying to clarify and firm up what the expectations are for 
when someone's getting hired as a project archivist, those sorts of things. Specifically with our work, there are good things and bad things about the, the way that the federal government's pay system, the general schedule works. But I do think in general, it creates a lot more stability and it does a lot of good things, I think, for librarians and archivists. And so there's, because there's this pay band system that's relatively well-defined, there are some differences in jobs and, and issues there. But for the most part, when we hire librarian positions, they're not radically different than the, the bands that the IT units work in. But getting back to one other part of your question, our positions for digital collection specialists and senior digital collection specialists that are librarian jobs have scripting and um, data management, manipulation things, things that someone might think of as being as having been IT kinds of jobs, but we've been highly successful in getting people trained as librarians with library degrees that know how to do things in Python. They're not software engineers. That's not what we're trying to hire people to do, but they are knowledgeable about library and archives practice and are also able to roll up their sleeves and do the kinds of things with regular expressions or whatever needs to be done to kind of work through an issue or a problem. And they're getting those skills from library schools, which is great because the, the library schools, I think, are creating pretty robust course offerings to support uh, people learning how to work with an API and uh, do metadata transformations, those sorts of things. Many schools are teaching things about how to work with BitCurator and those sorts of things, which is great too. But then on top of that, a lot of our role ends up being needing to be able to work as sort of product owners in various IT systems and services, sort of being able to talk with folks that really are engineers in the computing sense that know how to build and manage well-designed software systems. But it is really important to develop the skill set that what someone as a product owner does in a, a Scrum or Agile software project is being a subject matter expert, but also understanding what's reasonable or not reasonable, a lot of the constraints around IT systems. So in that vein, I, I myself, I wouldn't trust myself to write computer code or scripts much at all, but I feel like I have a really good handle on what is sort of doable and not doable from that kind of product ownership side. And I think that is a space that we'll see more and more growth for librarians in the future on because we do need to bring that knowledge of, you know, in the language of these sorts of things, the business of the organization into collaboration with people who are really experts on the more infrastructure side of that. So I was I was struck by a line in your book in which you wrote that highly technical definitions of digital preservation are complicit in silencing the past. I just wanted to ask you to elaborate on this line. What were you thinking of? And can you give an example? Sure. Um, in some ways, the the story that I gave earlier about, you know, the spilling coffee on the hard drive in the house museum or something like that is is, I think, somewhat emblematic of this, where a lot of the work on digital preservation to date has really come from a, some big institutions with a lot of IT resources getting into really technical sort of complex system design conversations and things like that. And so those are, that's all important and great, but it ends up often creating a space where folks at smaller organizations can be like, well, I guess I'm not, I, I don't have the resources to do that stuff. So I, I don't know if I can do anything. And so that kind of get the boxes off the floor mentality, I think is hopefully a way to say you don't need to know everything before you can do something and here are some things you can do. In that vein, I note too that the Digital Power Project preserving digital objects on uh, with restricted resources has done a lot of good in developing training and support for this. So I think that's what that is is really focused on is that 
the more jargon, the more elitist sorts of things get built up around it, the less permeable the field is to many of the people who are the most, uh, you know, the lone arrangers out there, the people at a historical society, a lot of organizations entirely run by volunteers. Those are people who I'd really love to have some basic info about how they can get involved. And I think in that vein, if you look at things like Memory Lab, which DC Public Library started, but has now been sort of franchised and is spreading around beyond that, um, sort of setting up spaces in public libraries that provide that kind of training to everyday folks about their family photos and those sorts of things. You know, families are institutions, small religious organizations, all these groups that we really rely on to sort of create the really broad net that documents and collects our, our experiences. Those groups need very different things than the sort of very complex technical jargon diagram universe. Mm -hmm. And to get at the hardware question, too, you talk about how at different points in history, new media are taken up with breathless enthusiasm. And you have a great line in which you quote the National Colloquium on Oral History saying that the tape recorder is important enough to oral history to constitute a part of the definition of oral history. And so at brief moments of time, new media, or I, I'm thinking here, you know, techniques of digital preservation become so important as to get confused with the definition of the thing that it is being used to preserve. Um, so I wondered on the one hand, what digital preservation tools you see as taking these kind of breathlessly important roles today. And I think an implicit argument of your book is that this is almost always going to be wrong or at least temporary. Yeah, I, I think that I think that the the example you have you brought up there, which I also really love, so I'm thrilled that you liked it too, of the, the tape recorder and oral history is a useful thing to turn back on all of our media and memory and and sort of mind in the broadest sense, right? So that Early in the book, I try to get at a, a few different ways in which preservation happens. So this notion that there's a sort of folkloric function of preservation, which is about repetition and variation versus carrying forward of specific objects versus making copies of information on media and the way that those things play out in different ways. Information, artifactual, folkloric, and sort of frames on it. And it's worth noting that Big picture, the folkloric system is the longest running one of them, and it has really different sets of assumptions. So if you think about everything that you know that you didn't read in a book or read off of a physical object, that's all part of that folkloric system, which is sort of very much a part of our bodies and our the way that we socialize with each other is a part of language. Um, so when you think about the way that much of the, you know, you think about something like the Odyssey or something like that. It exists in a preservation system that predated written language based on orality and repetition too. So it's worth keeping in mind that embodiment, media, and the, the way our own faculties work in the way that we absorb technologies into our sort of extended mind too, are all really important aspects of thinking about carrying forward information. So I think the part of it that I would come back to is that all of our media innovations have in some sense turned inward and changed some of how we see ourselves. I think the most recent one that I would point to is the change that has slowly come about of us all carrying around these like phones that are media capture devices and also 
media exchange devices. It's weird that we even call them phones, right? Because that's like the last thing you use them for at this point. But that's been transformational in just how we live and experience the world and document it. And I think now the fact that the interfaces increasingly to a lot of our systems are voice-based is also really weird and strange. I think it'll be really interesting to see with this move towards voice-based, which is basically an analog system. I mean, you can listen to things on twice the speed, but at least for me, so far familiarity with the media form, it's a lot faster still to read than it is to listen to things. So the return to the analog and the return to something that you have to listen to from beginning to end, you can't skip around like a codex, I think is going to be really interesting vis-a-vis the idea of a database or how lists are organized. So you've written about the more product, less process movement, which prioritizes access to collections above any item level processing or description, and maybe also above preservation using um, the quote golden minimum, which is green in Meisner's terms which I think is so important because the institutions that I've worked at have incredible backlogs. It's really one of the most serious problems that repositories face who really have the responsibility to make their collections available to users. But I also think it's a really tricky commandment to follow. One, I get the sense that not all archivists want to work this way. Um, In fact, some might say they got into the profession because they love deep dives. And two, uh, it seems to run contrary to some of the efforts to provide more context uh, that you you highlighted also in your book, Uh, more warning and protection around sensitive archives, um, just a, a richer sense of what an archive is so as to more fully understand it. And I think it's interesting that you give the example of 4chan and I love that you use something as challenging as that. Um, in this case, Stanford went entirely in one direction, which is not doing hardly any processing. I imagine because if they'd started, where would they have stopped? So I guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts about these two kind of countercurrents to the more product, less pro- process movement, which I acknowledge is, is very important for access. So the countercurrents are one, I guess the joy of being in the weeds, and two, any ethical duty we might have to get into the weeds, especially with some collections. Yeah, I mean, and it, I think some of my key takeaways from the MPLV framework is one, that the idea is that you're setting the defaults. And that those and having decisions about when to opt for different defaults is important too. So if you set that golden minimum default, then I think the other element that comes into play is one of the core concepts is that what you do for description, arrangement, processing, all those things align at the same level. So that there may be things that you know you need to do really close and things that you do in more bulk. But I think the other important element there is that. I really love their their concept of the difference between when it's time for a shovel and a tweezers. You can still do some important work with the shovel, like even just deciding early on, like what is the value of that series and what is the risk of how much PII is in it? And just deciding we're just going to appraise that whole thing out at that level can, I think, potentially serve both those goals at the same time. But I do think that the what the right 
sort of level of processing work to think about doing with any set of material is in a given context for a specific purpose. So when we get to the point where we're really thinking about this as, you know, the default is this golden minimum, but then there's going to be stuff that it's important to invest more time in. Or I think similarly, you know, if you think about the collection level descriptive work and organization work, you can do a lot of detail work at that level. Just having appropriate collection descriptions and the highest level descriptions of them is still important work that is well worth doing in a nuanced way. But it's just very different than how far into the weeds you go with the individual objects associated with it. And the Stanford example, um, I mean, that one's an interesting one in that it, someone basically, as far as I understand, said, I would offer you this this bulk of stuff I have. Here's my here's what I know about it. And Someone at Stanford said, that's interesting enough. Let's get it and put it here, make it available, which is useful. It's also worth underscoring that I think them not having gone into do detailed processing in it is also potentially better for everybody. Like someone who finds their way to that and makes use of it is going to have had to, it being not very easy to discover the granular parts of that body of material is probably better. Well, just to end... What do you think we missed about digital preservation, especially for maybe those users of the library who aren't that familiar with what goes on behind the scenes? The biggest thing I would say is that alongside the sort of get the boxes off the floor message, the other message I really try to hit home is that digital preservation is not primarily a technical problem. It's a it's the same it's a social problem. It's a resourcing problem. It's a staffing problem. If you want to know how serious an organization is about digital preservation, the first people to talk to are probably not the the folks working in IT or on the systems or the, the folks in the institutional repository, but go to the finance people and ask how they allocate their budget to support something that in many cases for a library should be a core functional spend right it's not a it's not a thing you project fund it's not a thing that you do on the side it's it's sort of very much at the heart of your institutional mission and the only way to do it well is to pay people well that spend their time thinking about the problems that they're going to face and come across who work together to implement the best possible system to mitigate risks as they currently appear and are doing a lot to think about what those risks are going to be in the future so i think that that sort of preservation is people kind of message is something, particularly when we, the sort of ideology around digital infrastructure and information is that systems can do things instead of people. But I think the now half a century or more history we have of digital preservation really happening and people in libraries, archives, and museums doing it and making it work shows that it's really about empowering people and giving them the resources to make those decisions about risks and not about a particular technical super solution at any given moment in time. Thank you so much, Trevor, for talking to me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to Overdue Conversations. This podcast is published in partnership with Columbia University Libraries. It is researched and produced by Lena Mo and Ty Jones. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and subscribe to Overdue Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.